have a message this morning which for me is highly significant. And I, I pray that God will clear the way for this message to reach you, to reach your heart. Because this move that God is sending, whether this is it or whether there's much more to come, our hearts are expectant. But the move that God is sending is a, is a move that requires faith, overcoming faith. There are so many promises, we may get to them later, in the book of Revelation, concerning those who overcome and those who conquer. And I strongly suspect that one of the fundamental prerequisites for us all to enter into the fullness of what God is doing and going to do, to be right there in the center of it, right there in the heart of it, not on the periphery, but in the heart of it, even being used by God to spearhead things in our nation, one of the fundamental prerequisites is that we become overcomers. The last days are surely going to be days of great conflict and God wants us to rise up to know what it is and to know how to find that victory to overcome in this day and hour. I'm going to take as my story Luke 22 verses 31 to 34. It's an unusual story and uh, one that leaves us puzzling, but the more we reflect, and indeed, the more we progress, the more we go on in our spiritual lives, the more we realize that we need this. Maybe you're here today and you have come through a whole series of defeats, delays, disappointment, disillusionment, and you are wondering, is there any way back for me? Maybe there are things that have been happening to you, things that you're going through that nobody knows about, that you dare not talk to another living person about because you know what they're going to do with it. You know how they're going to deal with you. And so you suffer alone and you face those struggles and you face those battles and you face those defeats over and over again until you are so ground down into the dust that you have lost all capacity to rise up again. I, I want to tell you, today is your day. You are going to rise again. Amen. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, chapter 22, verses 31 to 34. There's this little conversation, an extraordinary conversation, shocking, alarming conversation that Jesus has with Simon Peter. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me or deny three times that you know me. Certainly, 
it's my perception, and I know we all feel like this, that we're living in unprecedented days. And certainly, in my life, the, these days have been unprecedented, and maybe you will agree with me. Unprecedented outpouring of evil. Is it just me? Or have you noticed it also? There seems to be an unprecedented opposition, a resistance, aggressive, destructive resistance against anything that's good, anything that is pure and sacred. This attack goes to the very foundations of our society. And it seems to me that evil men and women in high places, in Britain and in Europe, are hell-bent to eradicate anything to do with Jesus Christ. From our history, they're airbrushing it out. In our education, they've really removed it. In government, they're falling over themselves to disassociate with anything that is pure and biblical. It seems to me we have an ABC philosophy, anything but Christian. The mass media, new forms of media, internet and so forth, has made the most extreme outrageous forms of evil accessible just by Googling. In the YouTube series that are coming out, spewing out lies, deception, um, and producing ignorance. I remember seeing very recently a YouTube video that somebody said, I must see, because they felt that this video would totally settle it forever, that the Bible is a human invention, that the devil is Jesus, or Jesus is the devil, or as good as. And let me just take one quotation from this to show you how the enemy is using outright lies, playing on people's ignorance. So one proof positive that the Bible is totally untrustworthy was this statement. Do you know the King James Bible was not even written until the 17th century? Can you get the ignorance there? Of course the King James Bible was gathered together from... from, from uh, different documents and brought together and it was a great blessing. But it wasn't written. It was translated. Translated and produced with the best available research of the day. And since that day to this, we've got even greater body of research to show what we've always known is that the Bible that we have in our hands is to within 99.9% absolute assured that it's the correct version as originally written and passed on. I also believe that there is an unprecedented, we're in the midst of an unprecedented outpouring of the demonic against the people of God. We are under attack in our minds, in our hearts, in our emotions, in a way that I've not known it. It seems that there is this last-ditch concerted effort to destroy any person that dares stand up for Christ and dares move forward to push any of this back. But I've got good news for you. And that is that we serve a God 
Who is more powerful than the devil? And after all, Lucifer, created angelic being who became the devil by rebelling, is finite, not, certainly not all-powerful. It's not as if we've got a battle between light and darkness and these two equal opposing forces leaves us with a d doubt about what the outcome is. No, when the light shines, darkness goes. Darkness cannot resist the light. And God is getting ready to, pour, to shine forth his light in these dark days so his name will be glorified. So I will say to you, I'm confident that we are heading towards another unprecedented outpouring. Not of the evil, not of the demonic, but an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's mix this with faith today. I don't know if this is the word that uh, Paul Cain will use today, but I remember when we were together in November um, in Sunderland, Ken and Lois Scott were hosting. You'll hear more about that later. We've been keeping up to date with, with that. And uh, Paul Cain's words over and over again was unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we need to know today, and this text will show us how, how to overcome by the faith of Jesus. Very specific. How to overcome by the faith of Jesus. So here we go. It is coming up to the time of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his several mock trials and final condemnation upon the cross. And each of the disciples has their place, has their position. And it stands to reason, we know that, that, that every single one of them are going to be completely overcome. Overcome by the turn of events. Overcome by the hostility. Never had they experienced such hostility as was now going to be marshaled against the Lord and his anointed one. They did not know, of course, that all of this was God's working. God's plan. A good dictum for your life is Whenever you feel that the devil is doing his worst against you, get ready because God is about to do his best. Amen. It is a mystery how the very thing which should have been the end of everything, Satan's master stroke, ah, this is Messiah, good, we'll get rid of him and then it will be game over. Yes, devil, game over for you because the very thing that you thought was going to take Jesus out has taken you out forever. So they were all going to go through it. And that's very interesting because in verse 31, Jesus takes Simon Peter on one side and, and he, he gives him some news. It's not the kind of news you want to hear. So, um, okay, just hang in to the end of the message. And maybe it will get better. But this was the news. Jesus said to Simon, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now what's interesting here is when it says Satan demanded to have you, the word you is in the plural. This was not just a word for Peter. This was a word for all those disciples. Every single one of them was going to have to run the gauntlet with the devil. They were going to know the, the sense of almost being overpowered and overcome by the powers of darkness in this very, very dark time in history. So he says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you, both those words, second person, plural, have you all. 
Satan is demanded to have you disciples, to have you all, and to sift you like wheat. Then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, and now it is personal. I prayed for you, Peter, personally, that your faith might not fail. So just, just imagine this. What, what kind of revelation is this? Jesus and the devil talk to each other? What's going on here? There are many people who are very skilled at telling us what's going on in the heavenly realms. And they know far more than the Bible. But there are these glimpses where we know and realize that what we see by way of the natural world is not all that there is. That there are things that are happening in the heavenly realms which escape our attention and we don't always know what is going on but we do feel the effects. But here Jesus just t takes the veil away just a moment. He says, Satan demanded. Now, the tense that is used here means it was a done deal. This has already happened. There has been a permission, a divine permission granted that the devil would have some access to disturb the faith to mess with a believer. And you say, well, how can that be? Very, very simple, friends. Remember the word test and tempt is exactly the same word. And you have to know how to interpret that. Uh, uh, what's the difference between a temptation and a test? Very simple. Temptation is what the devil does. God never does that. God tempts no one and he cannot be tempted himself. So from the devil's point of view, this was a temptation and a temptation has a malevolent intention. A temptation that comes your way, by the way, can only affect you if uh, you respond to it through the desires of your heart. All right? Otherwise, you can be immune, all right? As Jesus was immune, there was nothing evil in Jesus that the devil could incite. James says, when we are tempted, we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. So the temptation is there to mess with you, to destroy you. And I believe... This is very significant when it comes to our destiny. These are days of destiny. And it's not automatic that we rise to our destiny. We can miss it. God can have a plan, God can have a purpose, but we can miss it. The Bible shows us time and time again where people missed it. That first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, they missed it because they didn't mix the good news with faith and rise up to conquer, to rise up and overcome. They, they shrank back from it. In Psalm 95, God says, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. They shall never enter into the rest, into the inheritance that I had for them. We can miss it. We can miss our destiny. We can miss our inheritance. But not if you overcome. If today you determine to be an overcomer and if you've been a defeatist in recent days, I believe there's some anointing in this house today for us as we pray for one another, for you to be strengthened, for you to be healed and for you to be restored. Are you ready for that? But it's a done deal. So that's what the devil does. He tempts to destroy you, to remove you from your destiny. But God, when he tests you, he does it for a different motive. He tests you to strengthen you. He tests you to purify you. He tests you to develop you. He tests you to mature you. And this anointing of God in these days can only be carried by those who have been tested. 
and who have been found faithful. Now, there's still hope. There's still time. So rejoice. All right? Make your mind up today that this is going to be the day. So there is this permission granted. Now, the word here, when it says Satan demanded, it's, it's the word for request, to make a request. But it's, it's not just a simple request. It is a loaded request. And it is loaded with such emphasis that it becomes a demand. Satan demanded to have you all and put you through it. And somewhere, somehow, don't ask me to explain it. I cannot, but I can only tell you that it happened. Jesus gave that permission. Now you say, but wait a bit, we've come for some good news. Actually, listen carefully, that is very good news. Because it means nothing happens to you outside of God's permission. Nothing at all happens to you outside of God's permission. Even the things that you think are devastating, that certainly don't speak of the goodness of God to you, don't speak of God's love and speak to you of the opposite. Know this, that even in the day of evil, Jesus is there with you. And he has ordered it. He determines the trial. He determines the length of the trial. He determines the depth of the trial. He determines the nature of the trial. He doesn't initiate it. He's not the troublemaker. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is not the troublemaker. But there is a way in the mystery of God's sovereignty that he will, by permission, allow certain things that, to come into your life. Even though the enemy's motive is for evil, God's intention is always for good. And that good is a double fold. First of all, it is ultimately for the good of his glory. And secondly, it's ultimately for the good of your own spiritual benefit. Can you say amen? Remember, this is even more unnerving. In the Old Testament, it seems that Satan was coming to and fro in the heavenly council. And so God notices him and says, Hey, hey Satan, have you, have you seen my, my servant Job? Now, I would, certainly would not like to be thinking that today Jesus is pointing you and I, you and I out for the attention of the devil. There were great purposes involved. And uh, then that was the beginning of Job's trial and Job's testing. And he went through it. And he learned some great lessons. He completely, ultimately laid down any spirit of entitlement and he understood that God is in charge of all things and in control of all things. And he will even allow at times stuff that's way outside of his nature to come into our lives for his glory and for our good. But it's a done deal. I'm telling you, Peter, what's going to happen to you all. But I want you to know this. I have prayed for you. Now he's speaking very personally to Peter. I prayed for you that your faith might not, might not fail. I don't think we understand as well as we should the power and the relevance of the intercession of Jesus. Let us put it, put it to you like this. In Romans chapter 8, it says that he, he is our heavenly intercessor. And what that means in the very first instance is the one who defends against the accuser. 
One of the titles of the enemy is the accuser of the brethren, accuser of the brothers, the accuser of believers. But Jesus himself is our heavenly advocate. John says, I write these things to you that you do not sin, but if anyone sins, then know this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who turns God's wrath against our sins, turns that away. Jesus himself, by his very presence before the Father, is our advocate and he is the reason why you and I get saved, stay saved and live forever in the kingdom of God. He is the reason. Not just what he does, it's who he is. He is our heavenly intercessor. And right now, if we could but see, in the presence of God, Jesus Christ himself, in the flesh, resurrected, glorified flesh, in the presence of God, is the very means. He bears in his very body the marks of his suffering, the marks of his atonement, the reminder of the blood that was shed once for all, that you and I could be saved, stay saved, and not even the enemy can bring an accusation against us. That's the intercession of Jesus. So there is absolutely no doubt about it. The faith of Jesus Christ is sufficient for our salvation from now and forever. Artie Kendall and the late Dr. Michael Eaton, both of them respectively, helped me understand a whole series of scriptures in the Bible when it speaks about the faith of God or the faith of Jesus. And uh, if you just took it at face value, you could say it could be either a subjective or an objective interpretation of that in the Greek construction. It could be faith in God, the faith of God, faith in Jesus, the faith of Jesus. Or it could be the faith that God has. God's faith. Jesus' faith. Say, well, does God need faith? Well, if you understand that faith is confidence in God's word, who has more confidence in God's word than God himself? Of course God has faith. And those authors and writers helped us understand that every single time where faith is used in that grammatical construction in relation to a person, it is always the faith of the person. And this is so wonderful to know that the faith of Jesus Christ has made all the difference to our lives. It's that faith that saves. As Paul says, from faith to faith, very likely meaning our faith in him who has accomplished everything by his faith and his faithfulness. And this is how it's manifested here. You see, there is no difference between the teaching of the Gospels and the teaching of the Epistles. Jesus is laying here a foundation for the, his heavenly ministry of intercession. And first of all, it is about the accusation of the enemy. It's Romans 8 in a nutshell. It's Romans 8 in a nutshell. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing at all. And so Jesus says, I want you to know this, Peter. It's going to be okay. Yes, you're going to go through something. Something you'd rather not go through. But when you've gone through it, you will know that I have kept you because I have prayed for you. And this, again, in the Greek construction just as it says, Satan has demanded, but Jesus says, I have prayed for you. It's a done deal. All of this happened even before Peter knew about it. Jesus says, Peter, something's going to happen. 
and, and it's, already, it's already established, it's, it's fixed, it's going to happen, it's a done deal, something's going to come into your life, it's going to disturb you, and if it were not for my prayers, it would have broken you, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. By the way, I know who I want to side with when it comes to you and my brothers and sisters. I want to side with the intercessor, not with the accuser. I think sometimes, and this is bad theology, but I think sometimes the devil can go on three months vacation. He doesn't have to worry about what will happen to his work when he goes on vacation. Because there are many Christian believers who prepare to do that work for him. <laughs> Namely, the work of accusation. When we see somebody struggling, we take comfort from their failure. We feel ourselves superior to them. So we gossip, we criticize, we accuse, we condemn, we shun, we exclude. We do all of that, but we do not pray. Brothers and sisters, let us side with the intercessor on the throne and always be praying for one another. Don't criticize. Don't accuse. Quit your condemnation. Stop shunning. Stop excluding. But pray. Now we know that uh, Peter did survive. And he survived because of the prayers of Jesus. He survived because of the faith of Jesus. Now, one thing I need you to understand, and that is the phrase, the faith of Jesus, is used definitively in relation to our position before God. We are saved, of course, we receive the salvation by faith, but it is There'd be nothing to trust in if Jesus hadn't done what he did. So we're saved by the faith of Jesus, but you also need to know this is not just about how we stand justified before God, which is the free gift of God's salvation into our lives. It is also how we walk with Jesus every day of our lives. Remember Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see it there? Paul knew that he was able to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that righteousness that was revealed from heaven, from faith, Jesus' faith, to our faith as we receive it. He is able to stand before God declared righteous with a righteousness that can never be broken, never be removed, never be stained, never be sullied because it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. But he also knew that in the same way that he had received that righteousness, there was in God's purpose, a way of walking with Christ and walking in tandem with Christ, living by that faith, the faith of Jesus day by day. The life I live in the body, he says, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is how we overcome not just Satan's accusations, but we overcome the weaknesses, the stuff that's going on in our lives, that if it were not for the grace of God, if it were not for the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit, not for, if it were not for the faith of Jesus operating in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, we would never, ever be able to be successful. I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Now, Let's take this a little bit deeper. Jesus then says, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. We'll come back to that because that's the good news. 
But look what Peter had to learn. And we have to learn this. Every single one of us has to learn this. Peter was saying, what are you talking about? I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die for you. There's nothing that I need fear. I'm able to withstand this test. I'm able to be strong. Peter had an outside position, outsized uh, belief in his uh, confidence in his own flesh. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Peter was surprised, shocked at what Jesus said. How can you talk to me like that? Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that I love you more than all of these? Don't you know that I'm not going to leave you? They will all leave you. Jesus said, you're all going to leave me. Peter says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to. They will. They will. I know them. They will, but I won't. Peter had to learn that he could have no confidence in his flesh. Know your weakness. Know that without him you can do nothing. The Christian life is not just a difficult life, it's an impossible life. Without the Holy Spirit, without that daily yielding to the Holy Spirit, you will be overcome. You'll overcome nothing. You'll be overcome. He had to learn that lesson. Jesus gave him the very sad news. Peter, you have no idea of what's going on inside you. This lack of self-awareness, when we don't even know what lies within us, in our flesh. Paul was later to say, in me, in my flesh, there dwells no good thing, nothing at all. And when you, we do soul talk together and share with one another and begin to open up and talk about what's going on inside, we find that we are so self-obsessed. It is all about me and, and the feelings we have and the jealousies and the problems and the criticisms and all of that. It's about this stinking flesh that's operating here. But there is better news. If you go deeper than that, deeper still, you find the bedrock of the born-again believer. It's God the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, giving you a brand new nature. And that nature loves God. That nature yields to God. That nature longs for God. That nature thirsts for God. That nature seeks God with all of its heart. That's the new nature. And we need a manifestation of that nature where we admit to stuff that is happening enough to wipe us out, take us out, blow us out of the water, not just once, but hundreds and hundreds of times if it were not for the grace of God, if it were for not for what he'd done on the inside of us. So Peter had to learn that still trusting himself, still having the audacity to contradict the Son of God. No, no, this should never happen to you. You're not going to go to the cross. I won't let it happen. And Jesus said, Peter, you were speaking by the Spirit a moment ago, but now you are not just talking about the things of human understanding. You are speaking from the devil himself. Time and again, Peter was saying, no, no, no. Even after the resurrection, in that vision, and he said, vision of the unclean food, arise, kill and eat. No, Lord, I won't do that. Nothing impure has ever entered my mouth. Perhaps his strength was also his weakness. He was the first man out of the boat to walk on the water. The first man in the water when Jesus appeared. He was the first to confess who Jesus was. Peter was the first in so many ways, but there's this other stuff working on the inside of him that he had to learn about and had to overcome. You and I are in exactly the same position. And of course, we know what happened. Just look over the page. Peter has denied Jesus three times. I, I don't know him. I don't know him. And then verse 61 of Luke 22, it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine what that look was like. Can you imagine? Can you, can you try to imagine what Peter felt when he just, he knew that he'd let the Lord down 
I mean, big time. This is big, big time sin. Big time sin. Hadn't Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven? Peter did it three times. Having just hours before saying, I will never leave you. I will go to prison. I'll die for you. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. No, 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 I don't know him. The rooster crowed. And Jesus turned in the, in the forecourt, outside, outer court of, the, of Caiaphas' palace. That look of disappointment, that look of recognition when Peter suddenly realizes what he's really like, and he's blown it. For all he knew, beyond recovery. Is that how you feel today? Be honest before God. Is that how you feel today? That you've blown it so definitively, so repeatedly. That you say, there is no way back for me. Remember what he said to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. It's not over. Today. Today. You can get right with him again. And then it comes to this Jesus knows the whole story. He says, this is going to happen. Yes, you are. You're going to deny me three times. But, but, when you have turned again, I like that. See, Jesus has faith in his own prayers. And he is interceding for you. Amen? He's interceding for you because he knows that by his grace, you can do it. You can overcome whatever the odds are, whatever the issue is. By the grace of God, you can overcome. I expect you to be shouting now with joy. Maybe you don't want to shout with joy at overcoming because you don't want us to know what you're going through. But if you're not going through anything, don't think you ever will, watch out. Because it's already on you. <laughs> Peter did not know what he was capable of. One of the biggest mistakes a new believer can make, or we can tell that new believer, now that Christ's in your life, it's plain sailing. There is no way that you could ever do that stuff that you did before you were a believer. I had to learn that lesson. Not just my landlord in West Kensington, but the landlord's aunt. He was a dragon. She was a double deluxe dragon. <laughs> there was I in my little bed sitting room, knocking on the door. Have you got the heating on? Yes. Switch it off. It is the middle of winter. You're a young man, put up with it. And I, I, I tell you the truth, there were two switches to the lights. It's a double switch, badly wired. When you'd walk out of the room, you switch the light off, but he didn't use the right switch. The lights would stay on. You know, the double switch? You've left the light on. I said, no, I switched it off. Switch it off. The light's on. You're lying to me. You told me to switch it off. I said, look. I said, oh, then it goes off. Anyway, one day, dear friends, now don't forget, I was a very new believer. No, newer than that. In the Christian life, I was barely an egg, let alone having been hatched. And she came in and she was awful. She was so awful. No, come on, I want sympathy here. You don't believe me, how awful she was. And I said to myself, lady, 
you should get on your knees and thank God that you met the Christian Colin Dye. <laughs> because if you had not met the Christian Colin Dye, then this is what I would have said, this is what I would have done, and I rehearsed it in my mind. <laughs> and you know what happened? She came again. And this time, she met the other Colin. <laughs> and you know what the worst thing about it was? She never bothered me again. <laughs> Go figure. The, the Bible says we are not dominated by sin. The power of sin is broken in our lives, but sin still is there. The flesh is still there. And that flesh, own it in order to disown it, that flesh means you are as capable now of doing anything you ever did in the past, no matter how bad that is. So what's the hope? The hope is Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And there is just in this, we could go to the, other, to the other Gospels, but there is just this beautiful reference in Luke 24. After the two disciples who met with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and he who's made, made known himself to them in the breaking of bread, verse 33, they, they, they returned to Jerusalem, and they rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. What was that appearance about? Whether the appearance in John's Gospel where Jesus says, do you love me, feed my sheep, whether that's the same appearance here, we don't know. But we know that whatever happened between Simon and the resurrected Jesus was restorative. That encounter restored him. Peter said, I know now I thought I was strong. I thought I was different. I thought I was able to do this. I didn't know what I was capable of. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Help me. I want to live by your faith, not by my own energy. But then there is this wonderful promise. Jesus said to Peter, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love this word here, to turn again. You know what the word means? Converted. Converted. I'm not messing with theology here, but this was a, a, a definitive turnaround that Peter had to have in order to get back on track. It's also the word that we sometimes use for, for repentance. In fact, this is the word that most people mean when they use the word repentance. Repentance, in the usual word, is the word metanoia, which means think again, change your mind. And that is something that happens on the inside of you, which is on the flip side of faith, where you realize who God is and everything is turned around on the inside of you by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and you turn from all that old stuff and you embrace Christ. That's what coming to Christ is all about. But as yet, that word, though it implies behavioral change will follow, that word applies to you the very moment you turn to Christ from your heart before you've taken one step in the direction of Christian living. We turn from our sin because we've been made new on the inside. It's not the other way around. 
People are set up all kinds of conditions. Repentance means stop, stop, stop doing all these things. Then you can come to Christ. It never happens that way. This is a transformation on the inside. Metanoia. And of course, the most logical, the most consistent, the most fruitful thing that you can do from then onwards is to walk in the direction of Jesus and change your thoughts and change your lifestyle and change your behavior. And that kind of repentance of turning to the Lord is a lifelong experience, a lifelong commitment. Now this word, epistrepho, it means to actually make a 180 degree change, not just in direction, but it means that you have taken those steps of obedience. And it was necessary for Peter to have a complete change of his way of living, thinking, and reacting. Listen, friends. There is no escaping the need to stop your sins. There is no way that we can say, this move of God isn't going to demand very much, we'll just get a few more doses of the Holy Spirit and everything will be fine. No, there has to be a clearing out. There has to be a letting go. There has to be an actual physical separation of you from your sin and me from my sin. And that's not, as it were, the definitive thing that brings us to Christ. It is how we walk with him, how we go on with him in our lives. That fruit must appear. We must turn our hearts back to God, not just in word only, but in deed, so that our lives actually become different and begin more and more to approximate to who we are in Christ. It's an ongoing process. But it has to happen. Peter, you're going to turn again. Peter, after you've been through this, you're going to repent. Your life is going to come, come around again. I'm going to bring you back to myself. And when that happens, you will be in a position that you will never knew about before. And the position will be this. You will have a new capacity to strengthen your brothers and to help those around you who are going through the same struggles. And in this way, Romans 8.28 is fulfilled and God works all things together for good to those who, are, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God has an extraordinary way of taking the stuff that is so wrong and so bad should never have happened and so working it back into your life that it looks almost as if God intended it to happen in order for you to be in this new position. Now notice my words carefully. God did not, does not foreordain people to do that kind of stuff. But the point is, his, his power is so strong. He, he is able to take the things that have happened to you that thought would disqualify you forever actually gives you a new qualification to your spiritual CV. And as a result of that, you can be more effective for Christ than ever before. Go ahead, give him a big praise. If only you're willing to be real. And in this way, Jesus was telling Peter, you've not lost your destiny. You went to the brink, you went below, you went under, you went down. You were counted eight times down. But I raised you up again and you have returned to me and I've poured my blessing and my mission and my commission upon you so that now you're going to be even more 
qualified than before to go the extra mile, to be that man of compassion, to restore those who are downtrodden, to build up those who are broken, to help those who have suffered and fallen. And I will give you a supernatural anointing that has come out of your own experience that you now can strengthen your brothers as you've never strengthened them before. Amen and amen. One more thing. How could Peter deny that he knew the Lord? I thought about this. And you can say very simply, well, he was scared. He chickened out. And I'll go with that, but think a little more deeply. What was the one thing that Peter and the rest of the disciples said should never happen? Jesus should never go to the cross. Why? Because they, in that day, as in many in this day, do not have an understanding of the suffering Son of Man. You don't have an understanding of the need for atonement. You don't understand how it was necessary that this Christ should suffer and die to be the redeemer of Israel and all God's people. They were still looking for an earthly form of the kingdom, meaning having an earthly kind of a king that would make life better for them, make life easier for them. God who would always put them in the uppermost position, the head and not the tail, never have to suffer again. The conquerors come. It's all over for the devil. You now have entered into the kingdom of God. That's what they thought. That's why John the Baptist doubted. Here he was in prison saying, you know, is this really the Christ? How could this be the Christ? Look what's happened to me. He can't really be the ruler. Look what I'm going through. He can't really be the one in control of all things. Look what I'm suffering. And in this way, Peter too began to reason. And because of that, there was a truth in what he said, I do not know him. In a way, he was just speaking the truth. I don't recognize this man. This man is supposed to be the king of everything. This man is supposed to be the Messiah. And look at him, bound in Caiaphas' court, arrested, handed over. This is not the Christ I was looking for. And I find, friends, in my experience... And the experience of anybody that I've ever got close enough to that they were willing to tell me the truth about what's really going on in their hearts. I've never known other than this. When we meet with something that we don't think fits what we want for us, our lives, when things that we thought would go right actually start going wrong, when our dreams turn to dust, and our visions turn to ashes. And every single thing that we entered this for, we think to ourselves, God, what in heaven's name are you doing? I don't recognize this. And I don't recognize you right now. If only I could. If only I could take what's in my heart and have a surgical operation and put it in the heart of every charismatic believer today, we would have a movement that could conquer the world. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not about me. It's not about my comfort. It's not about what happens to me. It's not because I'm looking to get what I want. The kingdom of God is not about you getting what you want. The kingdom of God is about His glory, Him getting what He wants. And going the way of rejection, going the way of the cross, going the way of losing that childish, immature, unspiritual attitude of entitlement. Peter, you're not entitled to anything. If the master went through this, what's going to happen to you? And all this, false promises of an easy life, the Jehovah Gyro. Philosophy. 
Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and I get all the benefits. God is looking for a mature people because one thing is sure, if we go through with this, and if we are right, that God is about to do something big, it is going to cost, it's going to hurt, it's going to cut across some of the dearest desires of our hearts. It is. What a sobering experience to be kept overnight under hostile, police, Christ-hating people in Morocco. Our brothers and sisters live with that. I just, for one night. The hatred of Christ. They would have, if they'd had their way, I tell you, I wouldn't be here today. God gave me love and God gave me protection. But there is no way that we're going to march into this new territory and conquer for Jesus unless we've conquered that demandingness in our own heart. That we're willing to say, to look at the Jesus. But we know he was raised from the dead. We know where he is now, but that was the time to own him. And we have to own the crucified Christ. And to say, if they did it to him, they can do it for us. His kingdom is not from this world. But the time is coming when he will reward in the future manifestation of the kingdom everyone who overcame and has overcome.